Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Strong Reception. I'm Eli James. If you're enjoying Strong Reception, please tell a friend. Uh, Please let me know your thoughts at StrongPod on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Today I am continuing my series I call Return to the 37th District, where I will be interviewing as many candidates as I can who are running for New York City Council in my home district, the 37th. That's in the historic, mystical, mythical borough of Brooklyn, and it stretches across the neighborhoods of Bushwick, East New York, Cypress Hills, and Brownsville. It's a very underserved district that got stuck without a city council member for almost all of 2020 when it really, really needed the help. In the last episode, I interviewed candidate Rick Echevarria, who's running to fill this city council seat, and uh, you can listen to that wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I am pleased to welcome candidate Sandy Nurse to the show. I thought we had a great discussion of what can be done to help remedy a very real crisis in voting and representation in this town. FYI, uh, there's a section toward the end where we differed over what the facts are on super PACs in New York, and it's possible it was a misunderstanding or I, I didn't frame my question clearly. For the record, super PACs are groups that raise money totally independently of a candidate's campaign. They are not a part of a campaign's uh, fundraising apparatus. They raise a lot of money in unlimited amounts. They spend it on ads, usually, and they are forbidden to coordinate with the candidates themselves. Uh, Though sometimes this turns out to be not entirely the case. Please see Sean Donovan, who's running for mayor this year and is supported by a super PAC started by his father. So PACs, political action committees, independent expenditures, they're all the same thing. Those are totally different from having a group or a company or an organization that decides to donate money to a candidate's campaign directly. Direct donations do have monetary limits in New York. Uh, This came up in the interview because there are some giant super PACs on the right and the left that have popped up during this primary season, and they are influencing races at every level of office in New York's June primaries. They are spending unlimited millions of dollars to help get certain people into office. And whether or not they should be able to do that has been a matter of much debate. So now that that riveting topic has been cleared up, uh, let's go on to my interview with Sandy Nurse, candidate for city council in New York's 37th district in Brooklyn, where I, Eli James, do dwell. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Strong Reception with me, Eli James. Today, I am honored to have on the show someone who holds the distinction of being the very first guest to ever appear on Strong Reception when the podcast debuted in July of 2020. I am grateful to have her back these nine months later, and and that's been nine COVID months, which is somewhere between five and 100 years. She is running for city council in New York's 37th district in Brooklyn. Sandy Nurse, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Hi, Eli. Hi. Thanks for being here. So, Sandy Nurse is one of seven, possibly eight, candidates currently running to be the city council member for New York's District 37. Full disclosure, this is the district I live in, so the results of this primary are of particular importance to me. And I'm grateful that so many of the candidates running for this uh, city council seat have agreed to speak with me on this podcast, uh, particularly about how New York's voting laws and loopholes affect every aspect of how our city serves its most 
vulnerable residents. Uh, the primary election uh, for this race, for those who don't know, it's on June 22nd, with the early voting period running June 12th through June 20th. Uh, P.S. It's the same time that New Yorkers will be voting in the primaries for mayor, public advocate, controller, and borough president. If you're not registered to vote yet, you have until May 28th to get your registration application into the Board of Elections. And June 15th is the last day to postmark your application for an absentee ballot. Go to uh, vote.nyc to get the info you need and make sure your registration is up to date. So, Sandy Nurse has a history of organizing and activism in New York, starting with her encampment at the Occupy Wall Street protests in the fall of 2011. She co-founded May Day Space in 2014, a community center and organizing hub that uh, sits right around the corner from me on St. Nicholas Avenue in Bushwick. It offers classes, trainings, uh, a space to hold events for grassroots groups and artists. She's also the founder and co-director of BK Rot, a bike-powered compost collection service that serves the neighborhoods of Bushwick and Bed-Stuy. She ran for this same city council seat last year in a special election that eventually got canceled by the governor and in which the candidate backed by the Brooklyn Democratic Party, Dharma Diaz, wound up running unopposed in the primary that followed. Sandy Nurse is seen as one of the leading contenders in this race to unseat the incumbent Dharma Diaz for the 2022 term, uh, running from the left with a long list of endorsements and a platform that encompasses affordable housing, prison reform, education reform, and police accountability. Sandy, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me again, Eli. Thanks for covering this race again. Great. So um, I want to get into, I think I want to start with with getting some context on what happened last year because I still think it's important to this year. Um, you ran last year uh, in a special election to take over from Rafael Espinal, who was the council member for this district until he resigned in January of 2020. Um, the nonpartisan special election was called for April and then boom, Right away, COVID hit. Uh, March was our big lockdown period. And the special election was pushed back to June of 2020, the same day as the partisan primary for that seat that would fill the term for 2021. So it's already tricky from the start. But through an executive order, the governor had reduced the number of in-person signatures you needed to collect because of the pandemic and also greatly shortened the period for collecting signatures. But through some degree of mismanagement or ineptitude, it was totally unclear exactly how many signatures you were expected to meet through this executive order. You all thought it was 135 based on the order, but when Dharma Diaz's supporters filed their objections to your petitions, the Board of Elections said you had to have 450 signatures. And so you and everyone but Dharma Diaz got booted off the race. And when some of the candidates appealed this decision, they got reinstated. And then when the Diaz camp appealed that decision, a panel of appellate court judges said you had to have 270 signatures under the executive order. And they once again kicked everyone off the ballot who wasn't Dharma Diaz, the candidate handpicked by the Brooklyn Democratic Party. So the whole thing is really confusing. There were totally different standards going on by these very powerful bodies, the Board of Elections and the State Supreme Court. Dharma Diaz ran unopposed in the primary because of this and won the office. She's running again right now. I just wanted to ask first, what, what's to prevent the same thing from happening again this year? 
Yeah. Thanks, Eli, for recapping that so succinctly. It's very, very hard to communicate this particular <laughs> challenge we had last year so clearly. Um, so I would say some of the, the, the biggest thing in hindsight that I, I think is important is to have both the city charter New York City's charter and the state law to match up. So these these two different governing documents do not um, say the same thing. Right. So last year, the, you know, the city charter states that city council candidates need 450 signatures, clean signatures to get on the ballot. State law says 900. And because of those two, because of that discrepancy, the when the governor issued a uh, his executive order for the reduction, they didn't match up. Mm -hmm. And this, the city charter was amended over 10 years ago. This is what people campaign on. This is what people petition around. And so the, the discrepancy created an opportunity uh, for ambiguity and for ambivalence and inaction. And that's what happened. And that created a situation that ultimately led to our district, one of the poorest districts in New York City, uh, certainly uh, very hard hit by COVID, having no voice in the city council, having no district office with the full weight of the resources of a district office um, and constituent services on the ground responding to people in real time. And as a consequence of that, uh, many people in our community were left to their own devices and we've really had to we've really had to um, muster an incredible amount of energy and capacity and volunteer support to respond to the leadership gap that was here. Uh, it also meant that our um, our district did not have a representative fighting for our needs in the city budget process, and that was reflective of um, that. You, we saw the results of that when the discretionary funding uh, amount came out and when certain some of the public services and programs that we depend on were not um, were really lacking in the service fulfillment on in our district. So it had a lot of consequences, the games that were played. Um, and and I think in hindsight, we need to make sure there's consistency across the jurisdictions of the city and the state. And we need to recognize that when people leave their seats, there is a, a an incredible amount of motion that has to go into um, fulfilling that seat. And it costs New York City taxpayers and state taxpayers a lot of money to hold these elections, particularly now that we have public matching funds. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be better, I think there needs to be better legislation around how to ensure these processes go much more smoothly. and. Um, in ways that do not favor uh, people being handpicked for these seats because the petitioning period happens really quickly. You have to already have some kind of operation in motion. It's very challenging to just pick up and start a campaign when someone abandons their seat. And oftentimes we know that people prepare folks in coordination with that. So if, if you're a council member leaving and you think there's someone that you would like in that seat, you're going to work with them ahead of time as you're thinking about this. And it's, it really creates an unfair process. Uh, are you saying that's what happened with Rafael Espinal and Dharma Diaz last year when he was considering stepping down? I'm saying one could down? infer that. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure one can infer that. 
You know, you raise an interesting point that I've been thinking about a lot um, lately. I'm like, what is the answer to when a an elected official leaves their uh, resigns their position way early? And to be clear, Rafael Espinal stepped down to take a job in the private sector. He he, he decided to take a job. Um, Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking just from a for a going from a going forward perspective in ensuring a democratic process uh for all the reasons you just stated what sh- should it be, should you be allowed to resign your position to take a job somewhere else like sometimes I'm like wait maybe that shouldn't be allowed because it was such a mess afterward and yeah absolutely the the amount of uh, chaos that ensued from the fact that the state con- the, the state laws and the city laws did not match up on paper and there was nothing to rectify that is also just mind-boggling that that was um, a source of booting people off the ballot so my one we you know this these people step up to run for office because they recognize the needs in the community and they feel that they're best positioned to advocate and fight and that they know what our community needs and they know uh, what legislation should exist, or they have ideas about and visions and strategies about how we need to move forward, not only at a district level, but at a citywide level. Now, when a person no longer feels they have the heart and soul for that and the, the energy for that, uh, certainly we, we wouldn't want someone to be in that position who's mm-hmm. not waking up every day ready to, to go to work for our community, um, particularly in a, a district like ours where people have been suffering for a long time. This is an underserved community. We have an, an alarming amount of health concerns um, and disparities. We need someone who wakes up every single day ready to go to work for people because that's what we deserve here. And that's what people who work every day to put food on the table, who are struggling to get by, that's what they deserve. So we certainly don't want a situation where someone who's not up for that task in that seat. At the same time, we should plan for better transition processes. There should be better um, uh, on the back end of the, for the city council, especially now that we have um, fixed term limits and we know that at the eight year mark, people are probably going to be moving on or people are um, already starting to think about their next run or taking a different seat. We know that there are going to be more special elections that happen. Um, You know, I think from my perspective, I think Raphael tried to line it up in a way that it would make sense. We thought the the presidential primary was going to be on that day yeah. and that made sense. So it, it was a good faith effort to uh, create logistical ease, but with the layer of COVID, certainly not something you could plan for a global pandemic. No. Um, it just, it just kind of became a, um, a set of conditions that was really, really challenging. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the it's really important who the speaker of the council is, because when there is not a representative, the management of the district's affairs goes to um, being managed by the speaker of the council. And so that whole operation needs to be examined and reviewed. And we should think about what is the best course of action for when people need to leave that seat. Yeah. Um, and then because, I believe, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Can't have people just there, you know, held hostage in these seats when they're not ready to work. I agree. There needs to be a better process in place for when uh, a council member steps down. And also, you know, we can talk about the power that the Brooklyn Democratic Party has or the other county local parties 
have. The Democratic Party is the dominant party here, of course, outnumbering Republicans six to one or seven to one. And um, there's, you know, it's a very old system with some vestiges of the machine going on. And they threw all their weight behind Dharma Diaz, who was handpicked by the um, party leader who had just come into power at the uh, beginning of 2020. And, um, you know, they were pretty relentless about making sure that she didn't run against anyone. You know, they, they just kept appealing and, kept, you know, the, Rodney Spichat publishing an op-ed saying, hey, we, we can't allow people who don't qualify to get on the ballot. That's just not democratic. Meanwhile, everyone else yeah. is saying, hey, let's, let's put a pause on petition challenges, please, because first of all, board of election staff have to do this in person and people are getting sick and people are dying and the law is confusing. So can we pause this for now and have just, just have an election? Right. I, I think we can look at the fact, you know, I, certainly from our end, we weren't surprised that the Brooklyn County Democratic machine went about as much as they did. Um, and it's certainly in line with, you know, particularly for Dharma Diaz, what she does often, she's been party to many, many legal challenges to get people off of um, petitions. And you can, you know, you can, you know, do your own research on that. But I think what was particularly egregious was that in the middle of just absolute chaos um, and confusion about a virus that is devastating our community uh, and where resources are so vital, where people's time and energy and their travel and mobility was um, something that really needed to be taken into consideration with, with care and caution, that the party felt in that particular moment, in an economic recession, in a, in a global public health crisis with no actual definitive end or solution in sight, that in that moment, the Brooklyn Democratic Party decided, this is the best time to challenge a bunch of people. Yeah. This, is, this is the best use of our time and resources. This is the best use of our money. And this is what our community should be dealing with right now. And to me, it is a sign that the Brooklyn Democratic Party is is simply not focused on the right thing, which is putting community first. And if putting community first was the goal, they would know that our community deserves choice. Our community, our community deserves uh, people, uh, an election where people make their case about how are we going to navigate this crisis? How are we going to get out an economic recession? How are we going to mobilize the resources that we need to support people in this community right now who are facing um, loss, loss of loved ones, who are not able to go outside, who have young people who are um, trying to figure out what, what's going on, and many, many people in very serious and traumatic and harmful situations in their homes. So that is the thing that they were not focused on. They were focused on power. And that's really important to note. They were focused on power and not community. Right. So on the community, um, when you're out there talking to voters, and I know you you know, interact with the community a lot through the work you do, um, what are you hearing most? Who do you hear from the most, I'm curious, and what issues do they tell you about that need to be addressed? You know, we're hearing from people who live here and they want, you know, they want our schools to be equitable. They want to know that they can send their kids to schools. Uh, we talked to a lot of folks who say like, you know, I don't, 
I grew up going to these schools. I don't want my kids to go to these schools because they weren't good enough. And mm-hmm. we, we felt that's, you know, particularly tragic. Um, a lot of people felt like they weren't getting the same level of sanitation services that other parts of the district were getting. So there was garbage buildup and illegal dumping. Um, people felt like they wanted to have um, more jobs and more, more opportunities for young people, more opportunities for people who are in retirement who still need to supplement their income. Um, our seniors had a lot to say about their mobility and the infrastructure that's not set up for them. Um, a lot of people were just really focused on, I don't have a job. I can't pay my rent. I don't know what I'm going to do. And there were a lot of homeowners who were, who were very scared because, and under a lot of stress because they have tenants who can't pay their rent and don't have jobs and they don't have jobs as homeowners right now. And so what are they going to, you know, the bank's still sending bills. So a lot of people were trying to understand what their options were and they needed information. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's been for the last year, still, still the most pressing thing is that people need to know what their options are for relief, how they're going to, um, you know, how they're going to navigate all of these challenges they're facing right now. Okay. Um, so we've got now for the first time citywide, we've got uh, uh, ranked choice voting rolling out uh, in this primary election for all the races. And for anyone who doesn't know ranked choice voting, you can pick up to five candidates uh, in descending order of preference. Uh, you can choose up to five or you can choose just one as usual. But um, this was adopted by a referendum in 2019 and it will be in use for the city council races, the public advocate races, mayor, controller, and borough president. The intention is to ensure a winner who gets uh, an over 50% majority of the vote, as opposed to what often happens in the city, where we end up with elected officials who win with 30%, sometimes 40%, sometimes much less in the case of special elections. So I know you've been very vocal in supporting this. A lot of people, voting rights advocates, think this is a a really good idea. Um, What do you think about the city's rollout of ranked choice voting and and what do voters need to know about it that maybe they're not getting just yet? Yeah. So one, I just want to say I'm really excited for ranked choice voting and particularly for a district like the 37th where we have incredibly low uh, historical voter turnout. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this particular city council seat has been one with, or, and even the assembly, um, overlapping assembly seats have been one with, you know, less than 4,000 votes or 4,500 votes. So it's very, very low in comparison to the number of people who are registered to vote. Yeah. Um, so one, I just want to say that I'm, I'm really excited that New York has embarked on this process. And I think, it's going to have a lot of really great effects. And I, I, I'm already seeing, you know, our campaign has already collaborated with a candidate for um, explaining and doing voter education around ranked choice voting. And it feels um, really positive. So we're okay. really excited. Who have you collaborated um, with? On that? Uh, uh, we did a ranked choice voting workshop in English and Bangla with Ms. Dean. Okay. Um, who's also running in the 37. Mm-hmm. Um but in terms of the rollout, I, you know, it's, it's, I want to be careful of my critique because I understand that the resources and the, quite frankly, bandwidth that people had over the last 12 months 
was completely something at unprecedented levels of needing to respond to crises. Yeah. However, when it speaks to planning, when a city decides we are going to engage in something, there are certain agencies and certainly there are um, nonprofit sector groups that can mobilize resources to do education and awareness around those changes. And I feel like the city waited until 2021 <laughs> when we had two special elections back to back uh, to before they fully rolled out an education and awareness campaign for voters. Um, nobody in our district knows about ranked choice voting. Hmm. We, our campaign and other candidates in the race, should they choose to, are going to be the primary way that people will learn about ranked choice voting. So the onus and the burden is on us to educate voters, which is fine. We'll do that. We enjoy talking to people. We enjoy, um, you know, talking about these changes because we are excited by them. But at the same time, it is on us. Um, there are some, you know, their rank the vote is now doing a lot of um, online trainings and they're doing a great job trying to connect with many, many groups. But, you know, it's it's April. We're 90 days away from a June election. And perhaps I don't know the science behind, um, you know, people's attention span, their ability to absorb stuff and proximity to an event. Mm -hmm. But I do think that knowing that something passed a while ago, there could have been some strategic plans developed, which I'm sure there were. It's just the the implementation, I think, could be better. Now, I don't want to say that there was no planning because I, I can't speak to that, but I do feel like it could have started earlier. Certainly the city, certainly the Democratic Party, certainly other political parties should be engaged in this effort. Uh, certainly the Board of Elections. Uh, there are other nonprofits, like I said, that are so supplementing that work, but they shouldn't be the main driver of that work. The main driver of that work, it is our duty, it is our obligation to inform voters on on these these changes and to make sure that those changes are communicated um, with enough time for people to absorb it and, and and hear about it more than once in many different ways. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, uh, Gothamist recently published an article. Um, when the special elections were first happening in Queens uh, back in February, there was an article they had about um, this being one of the most expensive elections in New York City history, uh, down to, first of all, the the matching funds that are coming into effect, uh, public matching funds, the city giving eight to one matching funds to campaigns that reach a certain threshold. We passed a law in 20, early 2019 limiting the amount that LLCs can spend, but there's still no limit on the amount that a super PAC or what we call independent expenditure uh, can spend on behalf of a candidate. And we're seeing a lot of those this year. Um, the article in Gothamist points to uh, a lot being spent on our 2021 city council primaries. Uh, common sense is a big one on the more conservative side. Our city being a big one on the more progressive side is a law firm called Cozen O'Connor on the real estate lobby side. So why do you think these super PACs are being so active in our city council races? And do you think they should be allowed to influence our elections the way they do? 
<laughs> well, you know, first of all, I want to say that I'm a big supporter of the city's public matching program. Mm -hmm. I certainly, uh, I certainly am able to run a high quality campaign because of it. And I think that there are other folks in this race that uh, without that public matching fund would not be, would not have any pathway. So, so I support the city public matching fund program and it's been uh, really vital to my campaign as well as the campaign of many folks, uh, particularly women of color mm -hmm. who are across the city on progressive left uh, policy platforms. You know, money does play a big, big role in elections. It, co it costs a lot of money to talk to people, to print mail, to engage with folks, to have people to help coordinate. That is the reality of campaigning right now. And so we do need money to do that. Uh, the difference is our money is pre predominantly coming from people. And that allows us to be true to the commitments that we make and be uncompromising and unapologetic about the things we say we're going to do versus other people who might be funded by more nefarious resources and they might say one thing, but they're not actually accountable to people because their biggest source of money has been from other places and other industries. So I think, you know, public funding and spending caps are really helping to level the playing field for candidates, especially those who don't come from intergenerational wealth or who haven't been a part of a democratic machine for a long time and have been historically excluded from running for office for various different reasons. Um, so does, the, so does that I mean, would say that. Go, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, so does that mean you aren't in favor of these very big super PACs spending money uh, on behalf of candidates? I think there's, I think caps on big PAC spending always should be in place. I think we need to, again, continue to allow the voters to dictate how things go and, and to have the biggest say in the election. I know in our, our race, we raised the most money out of our, um, in our race, we were able to, um, it was all coming from people. We did have, you know, people found us and donated to us. And if we saw that they were a part of different real, you know, real estate or corporations that we thought had had con contributed historically to harm in the community or um, consequential um, outcomes, we refunded that money. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that that's, that is allowing our campaign to operate with dignity, integrity, and a good set of ethics and be uh, guided by our values versus the need to get a check because we have to do something and we're not getting it from anywhere. It forces people to go talk to people. It forces you to get a, a number of donations from the district that shows that you actually do have support here, that people are willing to support you. Um, even at a very minimum of $10, they're willing to put that in, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, they're willing to support you. Okay. So it. I think that's important. Um, in terms of like the big corporate packs, I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty clear on that. I don't think we should have that. I, I'm a supporter of money out of politics. I was a big supporter of that movement that started, you know, almost a decade ago. And I think we need to continue to move in that direction. Okay. So you don't have a pack supporting your campaign? Um, I, th I'm not, sh I don't have any corporate PAC supporting our campaign. We've been supported by labor organizations that have independent expenditure caps. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been supported by, um, many community led groups 
that I, uh, or like 501 C4s, but the, the only organizations that are, so have given us a check are organized labor unions. But I thought there isn't any limit on what uh, an independent expenditure can spend in New York. No, there are limits. So for example, a labor union has a, you know, a cap, I believe of a thousand dollars. So they can't just write us a check for like $3,000. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, again, I really thank you for making time to, to be on the podcast today and share your views and, and share your, you know, the issues that are important to you, especially around voting. Um, and I want to make sure that everyone knows where they can find out more about you. Your website is sandyforcouncil.com and your Twitter handle is Sandy for Council. And uh, sorry, do I have that right? Maybe maybe I'll let you yeah. give the socials. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Our, our socials, our Twitter handle is at Sandy for Council. Our Instagram and Facebook are at Sandy for Council 21. Okay. Two one, and yeah, they're all connected. So <laughs> if you go to one, you can find the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you have a good presence. Uh, okay, well, uh, thanks. This was a great talk. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, so, Sandy Nurse, thank you so much, and good luck in your campaign. And hopefully, talk to you soon. Thank you, Eli. Thanks for being so in depth on these issues. It's really, really refreshing. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Sandy Nurse. I hope you enjoyed it, and I truly appreciate her time. Uh, Stay tuned, because I've got more candidate conversations I'll be releasing soon, including my interview with Mizbah Abdeen, who's also running for the same city council seat in this district, and who, like Sandy Nurse, was removed from the ballot during last year's race. Uh, Mizbah and I had a great talk. Uh, I got so many great insights from Mizbah, who is a longtime New Yorker and community leader coming out of Brooklyn's Bangladeshi community in East New York. Please don't miss it. You know how not to miss it? Just hit the subscribe button next to Strong Reception on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, all the pod places. If you're enjoying Strong Reception, please tell a friend. Uh, Please let me know your thoughts at StrongPod on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Be safe.